Welcome back to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest for today, Scott Arford, who uh, was previously working as Radio Sound and uh, worked uh, as Infrasound with Randy Yao. Uh, hi, Scott. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Hello, everyone. And thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Yeah. It's awesome to have you I appreciate you it. And uh, man, it's hard to know where to start when talking to Scott. He's done so much. Uh, from running the seven Hertz space in San Francisco proper or Oakland, San Francisco, San Francisco, mm -hmm. and, uh, working on the fuck TV public access show with Michael nine, uh, his own recording projects. And, uh, also you've done like, uh, lectures and, and taught about sound as well. That's correct. I was, uh, I taught at CCA, the California college of the arts, uh, for about five years, I believe, sort of taught an introduction to uh, media arts. That's awesome. Uh, where did you get your start in being interested in sound? What what was it that drove you to the sort of uh, sound work and, and a more extreme kind of, you know, you definitely have, uh, I think, delved into like frequency response and usage fairly heavily. And, and what, what started that? Boy, well, you know, I've always been very, very into music for my whole life, really. And, and um, so um, and in the actually the like very early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I um, uh, had made a few recordings uh, of a project called Flesh Tuxedo. <laughs> um, two two recordings, I think, maybe three, um, which uh, I have no idea where they are now. Probably for the better. Um, then I took a quite a long break uh, after I moved to the Bay Area and um, <clears throat> moved into this warehouse, Seven Hertz, and um, sort of uh, found myself with, I guess, a kind of a studio space. And so, but I really had didn't have much. I mean, I really had no equipment, a few things. I, uh, a, a four track that happened to be in that studio. And I had, um, uh, I don't know, I had a few old radios and there was an old, uh, a kind of rack effects, guitar effects box and a distortion pedal. And I really, I don't know. I had, you know, I was really interested in making some kind of music or something. And I was of course listening to a lot of noise and experimental music at that time. And, uh, I had eaten Chinese food one day okay. and, and I got a fortune cookie and the fortune cookie said, use whatever technology is available to you. And it wow. kind of blew my mind. I, I went into the studio after that meal <laughs> and plugged the radio into the stomp box, into the four track and pretty much recorded my first cassette interference pattern. Wow! How that synchronistic is, is that? I love that. And that was a that yeah. was a self release cassette, correct? Mm -hmm. Self release, yep. Around seven, yeah. Under the seven hertz, I, I guess under the seven hertz label. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was a, uh, I think it was a C. Uh, I think it's thirty minutes aside. So 
Um, and there were a hundred copies of which I still have 15. <laughs> uh, well, I think you just, I think you just, I think you're down to 13. Uh, we will discuss that, uh, after this, but you are definitely down to 13. Uh, wow. That's really great. And so, and what you, that's kind of mid on the other side of the mid nineties, maybe 96. That was 95. 95. Okay. I'm pretty sure that was 95. Yeah. And that and and that's when and was the warehouse was the space going as a space yet or was it still just you were just kind of living there? Um, that's about the same time. It kind of all started about that time. That's when I uh, met some great people that were huge inspirations to me, like Joe Colley and uh, Michael Contreras, Randy Yao, and uh, gosh, uh, really a lot of people uh, at the NorCal Noise Fest um, and and before that. Um, but, um, yeah, so I was, uh, I had started seven Hertz about the same time, uh, as, as a way to, I guess, meet people. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't really know anything about, I didn't even know it was called noise music. <laughs> well, were you always interested in different frequencies? Like why seven Hertz? Uh, that actually came, everybody's probably read tape delay. Um, so there was a great interview in that book with, uh, Andrew McKenzie. And he tells a story about um, uh, a, which is kind of almost more of an urban myth about a scientist who um, was exploring, you know, found the, the the deadly frequency of seven hertz. So, and you know, over the years, I've heard a bunch of different versions of that particular uh, particular story, but um, that's really where I first came about it. And I thought, well, this really exemplifies what I'm going for. Awesome. And and you know we we had obviously talked to Joe a few weeks ago and and was he in when did he when did him and Michael Nine or, or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Conjures whatever his preferred uh, yeah, My, yeah uh, I, I guess Michael Nine <laughs> yeah yeah when did they start living there with you was that pretty immediate or was that kind of as the years went on yeah it was it was much it was later um, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline when everyone moved in, I don't know, mid to late nineties, Joe might've moved in like late nineties or early two thousands. Um, Joe and I were really, he was, as I said before, a big inspiration and we're friends. We used to talk on the phone quite a lot when he lived in Sacramento and, um, you know, he, he introduced me to a lot of people. Um, and you know, that was back in the days when, uh, phone conversation was much more prevalent than an email or obviously Skype or anything like that. And so I used to sit on the phone talking to people like, like Joe or, um, Daniel Menchie, who actually invited to play the first seven Hertz show ever. And, um, yeah. So anyway, over the years, seven Hertz has had a, a lot of uh, different residents and people, um, both uh, in the music and experimental music community and, and outside of that. So it's been a warehouse. I mean, it's a great place because it's a big metal building. Um, seven Hertz had probably 2000 square feet on the ground floor and it was one bay of, oh gosh, 20 in that building. And a lot of them were occupied by other artists and, uh, metal workers, musicians, um, uh, painters, just a lot of different people. It was, it was an amazing place in the dead end, you know, industrial wasteland of the Bay area, uh, of San Francisco rather. And it just, you know, it was, there was on the Bay, basically there was an old 
uh, was it Pier 82 right across the street with these amazing old, you know, it was uh, old cranes. So it was rarely used to unload ships, although it still functioned. But we used to sneak out on those cranes, climb up 10 stories up these ladders, hop in the driver's seat of those cranes and act like we're driving around. <laughs> and I mean, and we were, I mean, we would turn things on. We would announce things over the intercoms that would blast out everywhere. And no one cared. It was amazing. It was so fun. Maybe, maybe dangerous, but no one got hurt. <laughs> That's wild. Well, well, we were actually we were looking at the uh, Seven Illinois Street um, uh, panorama. Uh, yeah. Was that kind of was mm-hmm. that what it looked like outside of Seven Hertz as well? That was it. That's that it. Was part, right there, part, right? A lot of that was shot either in the front yard or even from the front window of my house. Um, that the front window provided. Oh gosh, I must have made three or four videos just setting up on the front window. That's like the epitome of industrial. Yeah. Totally is. <laughs> Completely is. And it wasn't, I mean, that environment was a huge, you know, influence on, on my sound and my imagery, everything. It just, it just really, uh, it was inescapable. Yeah. What was the first show at seven Hertz? You mentioned Daniel Menchie played, uh, what, what, what was the lineup? Do you remember? Oh boy. Let me think about this. <laughs> Daniel Menchie, um, trance Mason Jones project. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mandible Chatter, which was uh, Grant Miller, and, and uh, I believe he had a partner in that. And they performed with a Buto group. Um, whose name I don't remember. Uh, amazing. amazing performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, Awesome. Where have and, all the and, Buto and, groups gone? It was like a, a thing in the nineties. You performed with a Buto yeah. group. It was a, I know. It was a big deal. Yeah. Now, did you meet Michael Nine at the Mersbau show at Bottom of the Hill? I think we read a, in an interview that you might have said that. Is that accurate? That sounds right. Uh, I'm I honestly don't remember, but Michael has a uh, great memory, so I would certainly trust him. Um he probably gave me some cassettes and we became, you know, friends right after that and started collaborating on things. And, uh, he started inviting me to all the pain factory shows, which as many as I could show up for, I would go there and be a stagehand or just hang out and feel cool or whatever. It was amazing. It was so much fun. Oh, that's so awesome. And, and I, and of course, you know, fuck TV, your guys's, you know, collaboration actually Tara and I watched, I think five hours, five episodes yesterday. Uh, (laughs) We just kept it going. going. You know, Uh, that great, of course, uh, Influence and Machine put out the great uh, retrospective of all the episodes plus extras. Um, But what a what an overwhelming experience, especially I mean, literally, we just added on. We're just like, let's just keep it going. Yeah. So. I guess I guess if anyone hasn't seen Fuck TV, you know, it's it was a it was on public access. It was after pain factory was the it was it was the kind of series after pain factory and instead of predominantly live performance this was predominantly i guess how would you describe it video collage sonic collage i mean it was just it's a very overwhelming experience um when did you guys begin the project how long did it take for each episode kind of just what's the Mm -hmm. the background on fuck tv well, let's see. So, yeah, Michael Michael said, hey, I want to do another show. Would you be interested in doing something with me? And I, I'm sure the name was he came up with. Um, of course, 
let's definitely do it because as you know, I said before, I'd contributed, uh, I'd also contributed some videos and, and portions to the pain factory. Um, and it just seemed like a very natural progression. So <clears throat> the, uh, it ran for about one year, um, a total of 10 episodes. Um, and it was a monthly series. So we had to produce an hour of video and audio basically every month. So, Roughly half the episodes were actually done live at the Channel 53 studio, the same room that, that Pain Factory was done in. Oh, wow. So what we did was, you know, as you can tell, it's kind of all like a lot of it is filmed off of monitors and so forth. So we would bring the VCRs and monitors into the studio, set them up, use the nice cameras that they had there, set them on the different uh, uh three or four different monitors that we had set up um, and, and go. So in preparation, we would make, you know, we would pick a topic for each episode, scrounge the video stores and, and find as much footage fitting the topic as we could make. Uh, I think we usually use three monitors because there were three cameras set up there. So we would, uh, we would make three different tapes of edited materials. Sometimes it was already maybe once over filmed, even, you know, there was a lot of, kind of pre-production, then we would let the tapes go. Uh, I would uh, set in the studio room with the monitors and uh, with where the, uh, and make the soundtrack while Michael was in the mixing room, uh, uh, rolling in uh, editing, you know, doing cuts between the cameras. We had a, I guess we had a fourth tape, an extra roll in tape that was, uh, that was uh, in the studio that you could use. And then he would mix any different sound sources from those roll in tapes and, and other sources in. So, so that was the live setup and that was a lot of fun to do. Um, at a certain point we started making them, uh, in the studio as well. I think with, uh, with the riot episode might've been the first one. I can't remember. So that would have been done at the seven Hertz studio. And I'm pretty sure that was before Michael lived there. Cause, cause, uh, I think he would come over and we would edit and work on stuff together as well. So. So, you, so the, the, the soundtrack is, is you, the, 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 the noise and the sound is you doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Generally. I mean, for the most part, although, I mean, especially in the studio episodes, we would kind of sit down and I would get some stuff going on the computer and Michael would bring some sound sources in and, and, you know, we'd use the audio from the, from the cassette or from the, the rolling tapes as well. So there was a it was kind of collaborative, but, but in, in some ways it was kind of, that's kind of how it came about. Yeah. A lot of the audio would have been me, especially the live. And, you know, this is obviously, you know, this is the this is '90s, so you're not you're not pulling uh, clips off YouTube. You're actually going out and finding the physical cassettes of this stuff. Were you ordering from? Were you getting any from the actual like television stations? I mean, what was that process like? Well, you know, Michael is an amazing resource, and and his library of VHS tapes is extensive. Um, so he would bring a lot of things to it. He often chose the subject or the topic. Um, so he would kind of, uh, he would bring stuff from his collection. We would go to the video stores and just rent every single thing we could. And he, you know, he knew all the Bay area video stores and, and, you know, so we would just pillage and rent and dupe and, <laughs> and just collect as much as we could. So, and I mean, oh, and, 
you know, so, and then it was, you know, an hour, an hour a week, uh, a month was uh, a lot to do. I could never do anything. Uh, trying to edit on a computer would be, I, I could, I could do that much in a year. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I guess, I guess that's pretty, pretty great to know that really cool to know that some of that stuff was done live in the studio. Uh, yeah. Now would that have been live as it was going out or was it pre-recorded and then put out at a later time? Or was it like 10 PM on whatever night you guys were in there and it went out live? That's exactly how it happened. So it was, it was, it was live to the air. Uh, unless there were reruns, there were maybe a few reruns mm -hmm. that were broadcast, but it was live to the air and pain factory was actually done in the same manner. So it, it was happening at that very moment. And I tell wow. you, it was, it was always scary as hell. It was uh, tense. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Well, so when he's reading that speech of like, none of you are, none of you are watching. I don't know why I'm fucking doing this. That was live. Yes. That was our host, <laughs> uh, Jeff Gunn. And okay. Uh, he, he was the host for the first episode and, okay. um, and, and yes, that was at a very inspired, uh, very inspired live speech. And I think if you listen really closely, you can hear talk back from his headset of Michael in the studio, egging him on, pissing him <laughs> off. Now I want to watch it again. It's yeah, so it good. is really great. It, yeah. it is. That's such a great, uh, aspect to it. And so, so I guess the, I guess it was important to use television as the outlet as opposed to doing this making a video and releasing it there was something about the live experience was important to you guys absolutely the idea that it was broadcast live that it was this you know there was a lot of great and bizarre stuff on public access in san francisco uh channel 53 um at that time but it was really inspiring to think that someone might just be channel surfing and come across this and just be blasted by it. And maybe they'll turn away. Maybe they'll be interested. I have no idea what kind of viewership we had. We had a tiny little bit of fan mail, not much. Um, and, uh, but the fact that it was, uh, live, that it was television, that it was this kind of re edit, re mash of television of kind of using television against itself, uh, was a really important aspect. Well, I think if I think of televisions in a context of sound, there is no one that comes to mind before you. you you're the, the number one television sound artist, as far as I know, uh, in my brain, certainly. And, and I felt that way for a long time because of your prominent use of and, and listening of uh, televisions in your equipment list as something that you use as a sound source. Like you said, as far back as uh, interference pattern is radio, but like... Uh, Somnambul and and meter sickness are both credit televisions and I remember the first time I heard meter sickness and just trying to fathom how those sounds came out of a television what was what drove you to using television as a sound source and how was it how did you approach recording it what kind of techniques were you using for that well, I'm going to credit the fortune cookie. <laughs> That's so, I love that. I love that cookie. <laughs> so, so as part of what was kind of in the studio, well, there was a, uh, it was a, 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 an acoustic guitar pickup, the kind that, you know, you put in a, a, a steel string acoustic guitar to amplify it. So I thought, well, gosh, this has got to do something. And I just kind of started playing around with it. And, uh, I, 
I just started, you know, I noticed that it picked up electromagnetic signals and I was already collecting TVs at that time. And so I started waving it around the television, found out like, wow, this is cool. I can adjust the V hold and the H hold and it changes the sound and I can wave it around and get different timbers. And uh, so, you know, that it's kind of something I discovered by accident and uh, found that it was an amazing sound source. So uh, that was a, you know, it came out of that. I think uh, one of the things in the sort of modern age with a lot of like LCD TVs is they don't make the sounds they used to, but the TVs that we grew up with, that thing went like, boom, you know, like made a sound popped when you turned it on and the electricity started flowing through it. The screen would flicker and you get a little static and, those things made sound just while they were on. They would hum the big CRTs like you yeah. when it started to go bad. They they had a variety of sounds just themselves as an object. And then for you to pull the sounds out of the electronics, it's uh it's always been so fascinating to me <laughs> to use something like TV and in in the sounds from a TV that you don't normally think you would hear or get. So that's that's very cool. Uh, another thing that I know that is a, a pretty big piece of your setup is, uh, and this is a secret told to us by Joe Colley. It's the, uh, yeah. Yamaha EM 90. I believe he told, he said it was a white Yamaha mixer with a drum machine. And you know me, I, I went and did some research and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the model. Is that, uh, is that correct? Is that the, uh, the Yamaha that, mixer that you've been using? That's the one, you know, one of the things I used to love to do with Joe was go to thrift store, you know, go thrift store shopping. And uh, so I think we were in San Francisco and went to black market music, which we always called black markup music because it was really overpriced, but we thought we'd check it out. So we're in there and, and Joe spied this mixer and he said, yeah, I think you might want to get this. It's pretty cool. And then it had a little green sticker on it, 30 bucks. I'm like, well, I can actually afford that. That's rad. Okay. And I did. And, and, you know, cause Joe was so, you know, he was so enthusiastic about it. I'm like, yeah, okay, this is great. And then, you know, again, Joe, what a huge inspiration. He's like, here, see, it's got this headphone out. Just plug it into one of the channels. I think that'll be pretty cool. Sure enough. And so that became a huge staple. And, and I, and I did, I learned how to play that thing like a, like an instrument really. And I still, I've, I've burned so many of them out. Uh, I think I'm on my fourth one now. <laughs> Oh, and, they, wow. and they're not, and they're not 30 bucks anymore. Yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. And that's, so that's got sort of like an organ drum machine, like a pre-programmed organ drum machine on it. Is that right? Yeah. It's got a little drum machine with, um, you know, a bunch of different little patterns. You can hold more than one pattern down at once. So you get a combination and the magic of it is it's got a great sounding spring reverb in it. Oh, nice. Built into and the mixer. That's great. Built into the mixer. So when you feed it back, it just, it just hums. It just sings. Really, it sounds amazing. <laughs> so uh, we actually just did a um, uh, an episode talking about uh, the crawl unit Randy Yao uh, ninety eight tour seven inch, where we talk about no input mixer, and <laughs> it uh, makes perfect sense that Joe <laughs> suggested to you to just plug it back into itself. I mean, a very uh, basic but common sound source, and when you have something like a drum machine or a spring reverb in it to modify it, it's. Uh, it's very cool <laughs> to think about it. Now, is that the rhythms that we find on meter sickness? Is that coming out of that drum machine? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think probably most of the rhythms in that were sampled little sounds or, uh, you know, uh, I had a, a, a version of that propeller head software. The, um, uh, was it 
you know, I had an 808, a 909, and 2303s, whatever that was called. Is that reason? Uh, reason, yeah, yeah, I think so. Or, or God, what was it called? It, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was an early crack version that would crash a lot, but and and I didn't know the first thing about using it, but I, I would kind of come up with some sounds on that, re, you know, record them, and then edit, 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 and you know, I did a lot of that album using uh, uh, a, an old program called Deck which Tom DiMuzio was uh, early, uh, he helped develop that software or uh, at least did torture testing for it. And um, so it's all connected. Well, unlike uh, oh, wow. some of the people we talked to that sort of came up from the same age, you you weren't adverse to using a computer in your sounds to make music. Not at all. I mean, it was it was really liberating tool for me because, um, you know, four track was... I found the limitations of that really, really fast. And I really love the fact that, you know, I couldn't afford outboard gear. So having, you know, I could put a EQ on like maybe four or five tracks and even some compression, you know, and it was, it was great to have that kind of ability and to edit sounds and to chop them up and move them around was really liberating. And I also think of, especially around that time, not only were you not averse to computers, you were not averse to rhythm, which certainly around that time there was, you know, some people were very not, you know, not using any sort of rhythm, but you know, something like meter sickness and even up to, uh, you know, the, uh, sleepless cassette that uh, Gray put out, obviously that's, you know, heavy rhythms. Um, was that something early on that you wanted to incorporate into your sound? Yeah, I kind of, I, uh, I kind of decided at a point to not worry so much about, um, you know, to do what came naturally and to see what I could do with that, to not restrict myself too much because I found myself being too critical of my own work and it put, put me in a spot where I couldn't do anything. So, um, yeah, I've always enjoyed, I, you know, I love rhythm music, uh, and, and drone music. I like all kinds. So yeah, it just came naturally. And I, 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 yeah, I've always found interesting patterns. And I mean, ultimately music is rhythmic, whether it doesn't sound rhythmic or, uh, or, you know, anyway. Do you, do you find rhythm in, in static? Definitely. Definitely. Although maybe, yeah, I, I, I think so. Static maybe is a special condition. I'm not sure how much rhythm is in static. It has motion, but maybe rhythm is, is mostly absent. And static's obviously something, very important to your work. What, what is it to you? I mean, what, so what, what, I mean, yeah, just, I guess, what is your relationship with static? Oh, I, I think it's, I guess it's got a lot of meanings for me. It's um, on the one hand, it's full of motion and yet unmoving. So it's a kind of a contradiction. Um, it's a, it's a, a, it's a, it's a lack of signal at the same time for me, I want to make that a signal and make that the content where it's usually perceived as when the content is interrupted, um, uh, you know, because it's basically white noise, it's like a giant block of stone that you can sculpt into anything. So, um, and of course, as you start to explore static and really get into it, especially visual static, well, also, also audio static, there's just so much inside of it that you can pick out, pull out. And there's so many variations. It's like, you know, uh, it's like rain or snow. It 
you might say that it's one thing, but as you really study it, when you really get into it, it's there's so much life within it. So static has its own secret inner life, and I like to bring that out. Oh, I love that. Do you have a favorite static? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, nothing really beats that. Nothing really beats um, the kind of static from a television set in a place that you don't expect to find it. Wow. That's the best kind of static. So uh, maybe a good example, I was talking about climbing on the cranes at, at the seven Hertz warehouse. Uh, we snuck out one time onto the pier and decided, ah, oh, we're bored of climbing cranes. Let's go check out this giant building out here. So we walked to the very end of it and started to come in and all the way back at the far end, we could see a little flickering light. Just, I mean, it must've been, you know, a football field, two football fields down because there's a gargantuan building and there's this little flickering thing. And, and what, what is that? And as we started to creep a little closer, it was just a TV sitting in the middle of nowhere on it was static and it kind of scared us. <laughs> That's yeah. a horror movie stuff right there. Absolutely. Totally. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, were you using televisions live in your sets as well? Were you bringing the TVs out to set up and, and use as a source or as just a visual component? Yeah. I, as, as early as probably my first or second live performance, I would, I, uh, I was using televisions and I often would use two of them side by side with, with that mic, uh, the, the guitar pickup, uh, in between them. And by adjusting the horizontal and, 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 uh, vertical, especially the vertical hold, you could kind of get these beating patterns that would start to occur between them. So I would use that in conjunction with the no input mixer. And that would be pretty much the live rig. And I would do kind of a, a, a feedback set at one point I would jam in i'd usually use a radio too at one point i'd bring in the, the televisions and bam so <laughs> that's awesome uh do you see much of a distinction between working as radio sound and working under your own name uh i think i used to um but it's it's a question i've actually struggled with a lot and probably the the real story is that um, after I'd done a few radio sound albums, I, I guess I started questioning the name because whenever I would do an ego surf on the internet, uh, and <laughs> you type in radio sound and you got 15 pages of scientific papers for weather studies. And I thought, Oh God, I am never, ever going to be able to compete with this. It's just <laughs> never going to come up. So <laughs> So there was actually a little bit of a, maybe a publicity reason for that. But at the same time, I was also trying to maybe be, uh, I don't know, more of a serious artist or something. And I just started going by my own name. So, um, it, it, and in that respect, there isn't necessarily a whole lot of difference. I, I think one of the things I've noticed and, and thought about more recently after talking with Joe and you artists who started in the nineties and changed their names uh, to use their own name is this was sort of uh, the in the sort of dawning of the internet being accessible to everyone. Now everyone has a fake name. You've got your Instagram name and your Discogs username and your what like your bank account login, whatever it is. Like all this stuff, you have these different pseudonyms for. And like growing up on BBSs in the '90s and and using you know like dial up modem to communicate with people, 
I always had a pseudonym, so it always seemed a very natural thing that you would have sort of an outward facing name for your endeavors. And I, it's funny to me, uh, looking back on it now to think of wanting to be taken more seriously by using your real name when everyone uses a pseudonym now in many of their various daily endeavors and we don't think anything about it. <laughs> but it seems to be one of those things that maybe appeals to the, the art crowd or the grant writing crowd or something saying, this isn't a band. I'm an artist. Uh, <laughs> But your reasons for <laughs> ditching the name are a little more concrete to me of just wanting it to be something that you can actually find. Here I am instead of I don't want to associate with, with this anymore. Radio Sound always felt a bit of a mouthful to say as well. Well, I can but. barely pronounce the name of your first CD. Uh, that word is really Fair hard enough. for me. Um, speaking, enough. speaking of that one, uh, that was – sort of uh, released on an affiliate of Armed and Loaded, which did the great OVMN, Slogan, Condom, and Skin Crime uh, quadrilogy of releases in, in wild packaging. Uh, mm -hmm. How did that wind up on, on Tone Deaf, and was it going to be on Armed and Loaded, or what was the affiliation there? The, uh, I, I think um, the, there was a concern about content of I don't know, uh, noise ambient versus harsh noise. And I think he really wanted to have a different um, label for, or a different association for each. I, I think that was really what drove it uh, with, uh, with, um, man, Stefan, you know, he, he, he really wanted to keep those two things separate because I think he was really a harsh noise person, but he, he loved what I did and just didn't feel like it was an armed and loaded release. So he went with the, the other, with the, uh, um, uh, tone deaf, tone right? Deaf, tone, yeah. yeah. Tone deaf. Yeah. And it's the, as far as I know, it's the only, it is the only tone deaf, right? It's the only tone deaf. And as far as I know, I mean, aren't those four releases the only armed and loaded? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I, I learned from you actually an email when we were talking about this, that the, uh, photo on the cover of that CD is, uh, the front of seven Hertz, the porch, was it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's from, well, it's from the front porch, just another, another, uh, inspiration from that amazing industrial landscape. That's so cool. Use, use, uh, all the technology available to you, right? That's <laughs> right. Phrase a fortune cookie. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, something that you've mentioned in in interviews and and referenced in titles is zombies and and zombie movies. Uh, these the, these were a big inspiration to you uh, uh, back then. I've just always been a huge fan of zombies, and I don't know quite what's drawn me to them. I think I like the way they look, but I also like the you know this kind of like you know the apocalyptic. Uh, an almost tragic element of them. Uh, I've always really appreciated, especially with like George Romero's take on it of the kind of social critique of the zombie as a critique of, of consumer and capitalist culture and the kind of dead end of culture and what happens when you make a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, things just, you just kind of lose uh, it, life just kind of gets sucked out of it. At least that's how I feel about what's happened with the zombie genre at this point. 
Right, and, and actually in an old interview, you reference a favorite of ours, uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. <sighs> the Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Uh, and I love that you reference that because that movie in particular, too, the soundtrack is very incredible, and a lot of it is is like mouth sounds uh, manipulated and stuff like that. Was that was that that movie was was it was a big one for you? It was a big one for me, and I I did a kind of live performance piece, I guess, called um, Oh boy, I've forgotten the name right now. But it it was it was really it was that I I took excerpts of that movie, slowed them down uh, a lot, and did a kind of a uh, 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 feedbacky, slow motion, uh, kind of maybe early version of what came out in, in sleepless actually, um, of, uh, or at least of that style of combining some slow, heavy rhythms, lots of feedback, some organ kind of sounds and, and some very som- uh, moody and zombie inspired music. Uh, and so I had kind of it was a kind of a three-part uh, a visual uh, accompaniment to the the audio, the live audio performance. And would it be a still life? Still life. Thank you. Yeah. Got it in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> like, we come prepared. And, and also, you know, that that's kind of also referencing static a little bit as well. But yes, yeah, still life. That's mm. the one. Uh, what were some? Uh, just because we are all huge horror mm-hmm. movie fans and zombie movie fans. What were some mm-hmm. of your other favorites? We, mu- we must know. Yeah. What were some of your other favorites? Oh, well, of course, you know, Dawn of the dead Yeah. and, and the remake. Um, oh gosh. Uh, I mean, I don't know all the classics, right. um, uh, you know, the Fulci films are probably my favorite. Uh, the beyond of course. Oh yeah. Zombie. And, um, uh, uh, the third one of that kind of trilogy, which the City of the Living the Dead, City of the Living Dead, all, G- all amazing. G- Gates of Hell, better definitely. Yeah, uh, Gates of I Hell, yeah, more appropriate yeah. title. Have there's you, a, there's we, another. Sorry, there's another uh, Umberto Lenzi film, which I think, although he didn't call them zombies, might be one of the first fast zombie films. Nightmare, um, Nightmare, City. Nightmare City. City, yeah. So love, love that movie. <laughs> yes, love it. You know, I just yeah, I, mean, uh, I just watched. Well, I just recently watched City of the Living Dead, which was the first. The first Fulci movie I had seen, and it was, it really holds up. It's really an amazing film. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but last night actually, I watched Land of the Dead. <laughs> that was like the recent Romero, that, right? Oh uh, no, he, he there were yeah. more made after yeah. that one, but it was the oh okay. Mm-hmm. See, I, I actually have so, not. We haven't. It's the fourth one, I yeah, think. It's maybe the, it's yeah. the one that follows. It's his first Day one after Dead. a long break. Yeah. 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 Uh, Day of the Dead, which is of course uh, fantastic, and and. Uh, all too real these days. Um, but land of the dead is, uh, <laughs> it's a weird one. It's obviously a, a different attempt at a bigger movie, uh, you know, him making a, a bigger budget movie, but it's, it's still, it feels schlocky and fun. It's a, it's a weird, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed yeah. it greatly. Random, random recommend. I land of the dead's mm-hmm. worth watching. <laughs> hey, you know, of hey, course no, I, I also love that Peter Jackson film, uh, the, um, dead alive. Dead Alive, yeah. great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you gotten bit by the uh, Blu-ray bug in the past few years of all these reissues of these old classics, kind of getting a new transfers at all, or do you do you prefer the old school VHS style? 
You know, I, I don't mind the, I haven't got bit by the bug, but I, I'm certainly not against uh, better quality and reissuing and keeping that stuff in circulation and alive because to me, it's, it's really still some of the best cinema, you know? We agree. Yeah, we agree. Yeah. We, we actually, we, we've, maybe it's because we've seen a lot of those old classics so much. We've recently been really into zombie three and zombie four, uh, which are just very, very strange late eighties entries mm-hmm. in the zombie, uh, in the zombie genre. And, and mm-hmm. they make for some really great watching, especially now, uh, there, yeah, there's, it's a great world to explore. You'll find probably snippets of a lot of those movies sampled in, uh, throughout some of the discography. I'm pretty sure, uh, the last track on meter sickness is a sample from nightmare city. Um, and I, I, and I, um, I, uh, uh, boy, if you, uh, um, what, what I, I also do, you know, I, I've done a lot of video pieces where I've just sampled zombie movies and kind of made that the backing track uh, for the live soundtrack. And every once in a while, the, the movie will jump, you know, off the background and into the foreground of a sound environment for a break between songs or something like that. And Nightmare City definitely featured in that. Um, uh, you'll find it on uh, Zombie Dub. Nightmare oh, yeah. City's on that one for sure. The, uh, the CDR on Recipient. Yeah, it's yeah. a seat. It's actually a real CD. Oh, the CD, the CD yep. on recipient. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just kind of thinking about it, I, ever ever since actually talking to Joe, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Just thinking about a time when you and and Michael and Joe were all kind of living at Seven Hertz together, and thinking of your guys' art and noise and sound as being, you know, very very different very very unique takes and very individual takes but just thinking about all you guys together kind of i i I guess just like what was the vibe where you guys just was it just a constant like feeding off each other's different energies i mean just what was that just what was the energy uh back Mm -hmm. then i think there was definitely a lot of that of course michael and i had worked together a lot and then randy and i have worked together a lot um and certainly there was a lot of difference, but I think we all had a mad appreciation for each other's work. You know, I think we we're very much inspired by how uh, each of us approached live performance, especially. I know I was hugely inspired by Michael's live performances, which are beyond intense and the viscerality of and, and immediacy of Randy's live performances. So, uh, and of course, live performance was, was a huge part of everything that I've done. I'm almost more interested in that in, than in recording even. So, I, yeah, there was definitely, and we're all friends, you know, we love to watch films together. As, as Joe kind of mentioned, we watch a lot of movies and um, Randy was always a great critic to be able to listen to our work and encourage us to do more to maybe make a few pointers here and there. Um, he, he was always inspiring me to just push it a little bit further. Um, you know, he's a great photographer and he was always talking to Michael about like, you know, how to, how to work on, you know, with his, uh, very inspired by Michael's releases. And so there was just a ton of conversation and, and uh, tons of laughter and just jokes and, and humor and just, uh, you know, the best of times really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always say you, the most intelligent people are generally the funniest people and no matter, and especially, I mean, especially something like obviously death squad, just, you know, pitch black subject matter, just some of the darkest, most intense performances releases. But 
I I guarantee he's probably one of the fun. I've never met him. I but knowing people in you know in the same level of intensity and their output, some of the funniest people. Definitely, definitely <laughs> hilarious. Very funny person. Yeah, I do think something that I do see as a, as as an overriding connection with with this your you know again crawl unit Randy Yao your stuff death squad there's a psychological element and especially with with fuck tv and was that was that something that you guys talked about or was it just something that just kind of happened i mean there is so, just this kind of psychological study kind of element i i feel, i do see throughout all that work i'm not sure that that was so much stated as it probably just came out of of what we were doing you know i think for us there was a a big connection on you know, the, the importance and power of sound and, and a sonic medium, you know, how, how that can be an incredibly powerful force. And I think, you know, Zbigniew Karkowski was a huge inspiration in that line of thinking. And, and Zbigniew was also, you know, a, a friend of, of many, many people, including the three of us. And so, you know, I, I think it was really this idea going back to the name seven Hertz, this power of sound. I think that was really a, something we a belief that we all shared strongly is that when you became more interested in the concept of infrasound maybe yeah i think there randy and i when that project kind of started as a uh a interesting uh almost chance randy and i had been talking about doing something together and we've been talking about infrasound and low frequencies and we had put together a show at seven hertz and uh, one of the acts canceled at the last minute. And uh, so, which was very unfortunate, but Randy and I said, well, there's no way to get a fill in at this time. Let's, let's go for it. Let's just try something. And, and that first infrasound performance is one that we've been trying to top ever since we've been doing it. <laughs> there was a point in that performance. Yeah. There was a point in that performance where, where sitting between the speakers, we, and it was a giant, awesome PA system. We couldn't breathe. Like it was the, the air was being sucked out of our lungs. Ooh. Yeah. I know that feeling. Would have loved to have been there for that. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds rad. What were, uh, what were some other memorable shows at seven Hertz? I mean, I know there's so many, but is there any oh, yeah. that kind of stand out as just being like just some of those special nights? Um, well, let's see. Uh, Zbigniew Karkowski and I think 99 was just an awesome performance uh the pane of glass next door got broken during that performance that was that was really a good one um, Wait, it shattered glass it, sh- it shattered it literally <gasps> shattered glass next door zbigniew was on a roll actually at that point because he also destroyed uh, a toilet with sound at the recombinant at the uh, at the um, uh, at not humans um compound space wow <laughs> I'm pretty wow. sure that was the same visit. So, you know, Zbigniew really knew about the power of sound. <laughs> so you had very good it. neighbors. <laughs> or that, no neighbors. Or not the... <laughs> no, the, we, it, it's, yeah, we did. We had pretty good neighbors. I mean, they tolerated yeah. my noise mostly. and But I think mostly for to a great extent, we were a pretty noisy bunch in general. There was a lot of rock shows and a lot of different things going on there. So a lot of musicians and it was a really a great free-for-all. Um, Thinking of some other uh, Seven Hertz shows, though, um, there was a John Duncan show, and um, 
during that show, also another seven Hertz experience, I think his sound locked the door and no one could get out. I mean, it, the, it, it, the front door was jiggled in such a way, shaken in such a way that it could not be open. And I was sitting up in a very inaccessible place, just taking it all in. And one of the few people who knew where I was um, came up to me and was like, Scott, Scott, you got to come down. You got to come down right now. The door's locked. This woman is freaking out. She really wants out. It's, she's starting to panic. This is bad. I'm like, oh. and I was like, oh, oh, God, this is terrible. So I ran down to the front door and got my key. And okay, here we go. Oh, no, this isn't going to lock. I had to like get a pair of pliers and like basically take the door apart or screwdriver and take the door apart. <laughs> So that was pretty, wow. that was pretty memorable. Wow. <laughs> was it, a, was it a metal door? It was a, yeah, it was a, you know, a, a, an industrial steel warehouse yeah. door and wow. the, 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 the mechanism, the locking mechanism just got stuck. Wow. Um, what was the, I mean, uh, how many, so is four of you living at seven Hertz? It kind of varied between, um, for a while there was just, Actually, at one point, it was just me for a little while. That was a little spooky. Um, that's, at another point, there's maybe two of us, and we, we there was one of the rooms was rented by a couple of friends that I had a project with called Test, and that was the kind of studio workshop. Um, uh, there were three to four of us, though, in general, living there. And the list of amazing people that live there is actually pretty long and amazing and uh, i can i can i can give you names let's, let's <laughs> hear it would be great yep. yeah yeah well, okay and and my major apologies to those who my memory may not be serving me well for um so of course michael Contreras, michael nine uh joe collie randy yao um chris musgrave from the lumerians uh tyler green also from the lumerians um cheryl crosby who uh, was a DJ uh, under the name Shrill um, and a, a great, great DJ kind of hardcore breakcore style. Um, um, uh, uh, Gr Greg uh, Cowley and Kaveh Sufi, who are my partners in a multimedia project called test, um, which probably nobody knows much about anymore. Um, uh, who else? Um, oh gosh. Well, Kobe Von Tonder, who's a, sound artist doing current work and uh, Dana Schechter, who is insect arc. And I don't know if you've heard her work, but amazing. So, and I, I, uh, gosh, there's probably others and I'm, I'm forgetting. <laughs> now, what was the, I think anyone who's lived in a warehouse knows that it can be a pretty, uh, or a loft space, whatever it can be a pretty, uh, ramshackle existence. Did you have full plumbing and, and nicely built out walls there? Or was it a, more of a tent city kind of thrown together? What was the, what was the vibe like? What was the construction like at seven Hertz? And did you have to build all that yourself? Um, it was mostly full plumbing and uh, it, we had walls. So, but it was all built from found lumber. Uh, I built some of it um, early housemates built part of it people I, you know i moved into a space that was partly built out so it was a you know it was a it was a lot of uh construction over the years but and really done mostly with found materials because nobody had any money to go out and buy building materials that was just a prohibitively expensive so 
and in those days in that in that area, you know, you could scrounge around for a couple of weeks and start to come up with a lot of materials. Maybe you'd buy a little bit here and there, but uh, you know, I I uh, I inherited this really thick, uh, like three quarter inch glass that had screen prints on it of buildings. And we put that in the floors, 18 feet up. (laughs) And we, we had a, we had a, you know, from that front deck, which didn't have any handrails or guardrails, we had a, uh, a, uh, fireman's pole. You could slide down. that was hanging on a rope, which was a blast. (laughs) Sometimes we had to monitor that at parties. Oh yeah. Um, wow. I would imagine. <laughs> so you said you said the floor eighteen feet up. So what how how tall was this space and how many floors were built out? What was that like? Yeah. So the space was uh about twenty feet wide by uh hundred ninety feet long. So kind of almost shoebox kind of proportion. Uh and it had kind of a sawtooth roof or a, a peaked kind of roof. And at the highest point, I think it was thirty-five feet. At the lowest it was twenty-five. So the top floor that that front deck was 18 or 20 feet up. So, uh, and then, you know, they're kind of, uh, it was built out with some rooms in the back and a kind of bank of rooms in the center that had the kitchen, the bathroom, and then my room in the studio, the back area had the living room and, uh, two, two or three more rooms in the back there. So, and then just big open space. So the main performance space had this giant, you know, 35 foot ceiling and a, and a nice big open space. And we had kind of bridges. We were very adverse to putting handrails in. Um, so why, it, it was why, fun. Why was that? Why were you adverse <laughs> you know, to I think it's my rebellious nature. Uh, not, that's, that's uh, presuming a lot, but I work as an architect and I just like the fact that I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it kept people, it kept people in check, but I don't know. It just, it, it actually contributed to the openness of it. And during shows, you know, people could just kind of sit on the edge of the deck and dangle their legs over and it it didn't Mm -hmm. particularly feel unsafe. Um, So there was, (laughs) there was really no accidents there, which is, uh, I don't know, I guess I feel fortunate, but uh, it, it, it never felt unsafe. I'm sure it was though. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I take, I take it back many years ago. I was walking. I don't know where I was. A guy came up to me and he's like, Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? He looks at me and says, you don't remember me. Do you I'm like, no, I don't. It's like, how was that guy? And I looked at him. What, what guy? He says, do you remember that guy who kept going up the fire pole and sliding down way too fast. And it was too drunk to be doing it. Yeah, that was me. And remember you kicked me out. Remember you kicked me out three times and I kept coming back. <laughs> anyway, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I finally left. Cause I, I broke my foot. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you remember what show it was? I really don't remember. <laughs> See, you monitored it well. Yeah. It's great. Uh, <laughs> totally. Sounds like it was his fault. Yeah. Um, so how many shows roughly a month were you guys doing? You know, not that many. Um, less than one a month. Um, oh, I think, okay. Because in, in the winter, I think I tried one show in February. That would have been maybe the second show ever. Um, uh, and it was it was brutal. It was very cold. Um, but I think at the, you know, when, when we were doing the most shows, 
uh, I think maybe nine or 10 in a year, and they were all condensed into the summer months. So I guess there would have been time or summer and, and spring, fall. Um, so there would have been times when there's maybe two shows a month. It was a lot. And, you know, considering that that was the same time Fuck TV was being produced and you know, it was pretty busy, busy times. I don't know how, I don't know how any of us did it. Cause it was, we were busy all the time. <laughs> So there's no warming frequency that you can yeah, pump yeah, through yeah. the speakers. If there would have been one, we would have found it. <laughs> a nice windy, breezy frequency for the spring. Yeah, and then, and then a, warm, a fire frequency. Yeah. For the I, you know, I saw on a DVD that Manowar found a frequency to make their speakers generate fire. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That was, that was absolutely true. Yeah. That is absolutely true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we had a... Mm. Uh, Listener question actually from our Patreon that uh, was, and we should also note that the armed and loaded question was also from a listener. That is correct. The armed and loaded question was yes. also from a listener. Uh, do you have any recollection? And uh, actually, the uh, not that we wouldn't have asked, but the uh, you getting into televisions was a question that a listener also suggested. Uh, but uh, do you have any recollection of who Dr. Crystal Mess was from the Pain Factory <laughs> days? Uh, this person has tried to figure out, and there seems to be no evidence of them outside of that performance, really. A very elusive one, and I actually took that task to heart, and I, I, I have to say that I was unsuccessful. Um, but I contacted David Wright, who also played on that show. That's Not Breathing? And, not Breathing, yes. And um, I... I and, He's, he told me that he's like, oh, yeah, who is that guy? Um, and who did he contact? He contacted Chris Cones, who kind of remembered him and had been in touch with him up to maybe 10 years ago and said, I, and so we're working on it. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a wow. to be continued. Wow. Uh, I, I think the closer we get, the further away it's he's going to go. I right. love this juicy mystery. It'll be, a, it will be, it'll be an addendum episode someday. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the alien of... autopsy video, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, Another totally true. Mention the armed and loaded question. And also, uh, you assisted with design for those. Do I remember seeing that in the credits there that you helped uh, the design or fabrication? or what was your, yeah, what was your um, hand in making those releases? You, you may not have seen it in the credits because I went under, as we're talking about aliases before, uh, under the pseudonym Mr. Tickle, <laughs> which, which also happened to be my circus name, which is maybe a whole nother story. Uh, we'll put a pin in that. Let's continue this Arm and Dangerous and we'll circle back. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't forget. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So Stefan uh, approached me and asked me if I could help out with some of the designs. So you know, he had kind of you know he he was really uh, the the um, the, the uh, uh, design director of all that, and and he had kind of worked with images and and gave me a bunch of stuff to. I, I, uh, to work with and kind of, he had the ideas for the packaging. And so it was really, you know, the design was really his baby. Um, but I kind of helped do some of the layouts and, and did all the kind of computer based work to put it together. So that was a lot of fun. And I was, I felt really uh, happy to be included in that process because those are some pretty cool physical objects. They are. They are were, indeed. were you involved in the actual uh, putting together like of the condom? Um, well, I, I did all those layouts. The layout, but I mean, like yeah. the yeah. action. Did you? Mm -hmm. Were you involved in the in kind of procuring fabrication? 
Oh, yeah. Thank no, you, you know, no. I, I think Stefan probably, uh, at least, uh, I don't know if he, he probably put them all together. I don't know who did the silk screening and all that. But um, yeah, I, I just kind of did the graphic computer based stuff and, and gave him the files to, to go from. So awesome. Awesome. Um, circus. What, what is, what is this? What is this, Mr. Tickle? Yes. This was in my, you know, before, I mean, maybe as I was just starting radio sound, I was also one of my neighbors, uh, had uh, Don Paul Swain had a project called circus X and it was a punk rock circus, I guess. Um, not nearly as good as some of the other circuses of the Bay area of, uh, the early, and mid nineties, but circus X was a lot of fun. And, um, so I played a hunchback and I, I did a video freak show. I made a kind of video freak show. Well, kind of edit of different freak videos and would stuff people into a small room and tell them they were going to see scary, horrible things and let them watch it. And it ended up, you know, the, the piece ended, I think it was maybe 10 or 12 minute piece ended with a, a nice long excerpt from uh, Herzog's even dwarves started small mm-hmm. with the, the end of that film with, with uh, the, the, the little person laughing and laughing and right. laughing, yeah. laughing at you. So that was just a lot of fun. You know, I, I was a stagehand for all the different uh, uh, acts and uh, also ran the sound and soundtrack part portion of the show. It, it was a lot of fun, but it was not, uh, it took more time. I, I had to make a choice really to stay in the circus or to get more into the, the sound and radio sound projects. So wow. what kind of other uh, acts did the circus have? Oh, we had a great contortionist, bed of nails person, um, a, a, a truly wonderful trapeze artist uh, and then a few clown type people, um, people with some real circus skills. Uh, Don Paul was sort of the ringleader and he, he made kind of sideshow fake mermaids and the merbear and, and some of these things. And, um, you know, it was kind of part of, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, there were a lot of competing ex- circuses. <laughs> circus ridiculous trapeze trapeze <laughs> no there was That's i mean we had some involved. <laughs> highly involved and she was quite good um uh there was uh you know and we had a mix interesting mix of people who actually had real talent uh in circus arts and mm-hmm. people like me who were having fun and playing characters <laughs> um i think you made the right decision it sounds amazing <laughs> yes. but i do think you made the right decision yes. obviously we have such wonderful uh, work we can watch and listen to. So, you know, but I would, lo- I would love to see, uh, I would, I would have loved to have seen you, uh, as Mr. Tickle, it would have been a real Circus treat. <laughs> <laughs> when did you, uh, when did you meet up with Eric Hoffman? Oh boy, that, that's a good question. Well, that would have been, uh, I guess the first time I met Eric Hoffman was the first time I met a lot of people who became hugely influential in, in my world in life. And that would have been NorCal 95. So that was a, I'm just going to say a very special moment in time um, because I think that's probably when I met Randy, I met the Eric Hoffman and, 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 and Jorge, uh, gosh, how many, Jeff uh, Brandon from Finn, um, just a whole great number of people from, from all over California 
and people I've remained lifelong friends with. That's very so, cool. Yeah. And uh, actually, it's uh, worth noting that the NorCal Noise Fest is coming up in October, October second uh, through fourth. They're doing a virtual fest with like seventy-five performers that will be streamed on a YouTube channel. So while uh, you won't be able to go All in weekend. person and meet a bunch of highly influential people like Scott did back in 95, there is a, a weekend virtual noise fest for those of us cooped up at home to get to see. I know GX is uh, going to be on it. Crank Sturgeon, a um, bunch of, bunch of stuff. So uh, you can check it out at NorCalNoiseFest.com. Yeah. Huge, amazing event. And I'm, I, I'm blown away that it's it's still ongoing because it's I just think a huge influence for a lot of people and and you know just just a great networking event as well as great for audiences. Although I I feel like the audience to performer ratio has remained fairly constant. <laughs> I feel so that. frequently the case. <laughs> it, uh, it yeah. Exactly. How do you know you're at a noise show? Because you've got your mixing desk in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, and that is, of course, something we do talk about. But I think there is something about noise and, you know, sound experimentation, whatever words you want to use for it, that it is it's it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. So whether or not it's you're making noise, whether or not you do video, there's I think it just feeds into people doing other things and just inspires other things, you know, writing art, however it goes, there's, there's, there's generally a, a, a connection and make an, an active connection. And I think that's, I think that's Absolutely. one of the powerful things uh, of this art. Well, I and think. it's hard to consistently experience, you know, noise and people creating things without becoming inspired yourself. Like every episode that we do, you know, is just more, more inspired coming out of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I was being a bit facetious, you know, the, the last noise fest that I played at, which was, you know, I, I didn't play since the nineties until maybe 2015 or something. And honestly, the audience was, was very impressive. Actually, those first few noise fests, it was pretty much all the artists, but now, I mean, Lob has done such an amazing job. There's tons of people at those shows and it's a great vibe, a lot of fun. Heck yeah. We talked a little bit about your gear a couple pieces of gear, but, uh, you know, we're on a zoom call and I have the benefit of seeing Scott in his studio right now. And there's more than just a couple pieces of gear, uh, in the background there. So how has your uh, equipment evolved over the years? Like from going from a $30 resale shop mixer, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever to, and four track to, uh, kind of the setup you've got now. I know you, you aren't afraid to use the modular since, samplers, uh, all kinds of gear. So what, what was the path for that? Yeah. Well, I can say certainly that until something breaks, I've never thrown it away or, or sold it. I, I've kind of, uh, I, I don't know, maybe hoarder is the right word, but, uh, I mean, I, I've always tried to keep my old gear. I have a lot of my old televisions and I certainly collected televisions and radios over the years. Um, old analog mixers has been a particular favorite because they all have their own special unique sound. And I've still never found one that feeds back and sounds quite as wonderful as the EM 90. And I've, I purchased, uh, I, I think I've burned through a few of those and I currently have in my studio, uh, two EM nineties and some uh, other versions 
uh, uh, different different makes and models of the Yamaha mixers. So that kind of equipment I've always just really loved. I've inherited some kind of weird rack gear that people have said, well, I don't know if we have much use for this, Scott. I bet you could use it. And in most cases, that's been true. Um, I found some, you know, I, I like old analog gear. Of course, I, I love I love the computer too. And I'm a huge proponent of, of using computer um, in the studio, of course. And, and I'm not afraid to use one live. Um, you know, starting in about 2008, or nine, I kind of decided I needed a change and started buying some synths. So, um, although I haven't, uh, I, I'm not going to get the the uh, the modular bug because I'm I, uh, the the investment is is substantial. I do have a lot of kind of cool little. I like the small form factor synths, like you know I've got Waldorf Blofeld and Dave synth Tetra and just a bunch of tiny fun and little synths uh, that I make a lot of different styles and kinds of music with. So awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a total gear freak like some people, but I, I enjoy musical gear. I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> like gray right there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. You know what? Oh, this yeah, is, this is the one here. <laughs> He, he just showed us a view of the studio and, and wow. yes, it's phenomenal. It's the other side. That's, so that's incredible. That's now we're going to need to include photos for our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So very cool. So yeah, I've just, I've, I've amassed a lot of equipment over the year and in the last couple of years, I've uh, kind of built the studio out so that most of it can be, uh, easily accessed. So I've, I've always thought of, you know, equipment is, is, I think, again, it's a fortune cookie. Everything kind of, uh, has its own thing, its own sound. And I actually think Joe said it better than I ever could, but he, he talked about how, uh, different pieces of equipment kind of direct you what to do. And I've always felt that way. The TV has directed me to do a certain kind of music, a certain kind of performance, the radios, have their own kind of uh, thing that they want to become. And I, I really believe in trying to harness the energy of what the instrument has to offer and, and trying to listen to it as much as trying to impose your own ideas onto what it will onto the music itself. I feel that entirely. Uh, I, got a new synth recently and set it up and just started playing with it. And it sounded completely insane and different than anything that I had been doing. So I just sort of went with it and let it run and recorded a bunch of it because it was, it was dictating what it wanted to do. And I, I don't know that I would have ever thought to patch it that way. It was just sort of this, like out of the box, I started messing with it and then I'm like, I should plug this thing in. And it just sounded great. So I like, I like letting the, the piece of gear dictate. It's, it's a fine line between learning how to use your equipment to the fullest and maximize, like you said, the EM 90, you know, you know, everything about it. You've learned it as an instrument. It's, you know, you're very comfortable with it. But then when you get something new, there's a lot to discover. And that process of discovery can also be very inspiring. So it's a it's a very fine line to walk of like wanting to acquire new stuff to be inspired by it and being re-inspired by pushing something you already own even further. 
I think an important part of being a noise or experimental musician is being equal part listener as performer, being able to hear what's what something is doing and find and hear what what's what is it about that that's that you want to you want to keep and expand on. I think that's awesome. So you're like getting to know your gear on a personal level, so they become like you know somebody you're collaborating with and not just you know a machine that you're forcing to do something. Absolutely, and, it, and it's it's I mean and the idea of of uh, collage not being as much uh, in the sense that you you have to work with found things something uh, a sound is presented from you what can you do with that you have to work with it and, and make it into something right on i love that that's amazing yeah maybe that's what makes those love those inorganic machines make such organic sounds is because you know they're you're you know allowing that voice to come through in a natural way I love that. Wow, Scott, this was such a great conversation. Yeah. Oh, it's been it's been really fun. You've 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 tickled my memory a little bit <laughs> and stumped it a few times. <laughs> it happens. I mean, and honestly, we always jokingly say that we the second we hit record and put the mics in front of our mouths, part of our memory falls away. We can't. There's yeah. words we can't remember that we could have, and you know, so uh, we definitely it happens to us all the time. But no, this is really, really yeah, cool. People that you know really well, their names fall out of your head. Yeah, like yeah, everything yeah, that yeah. you've done, you forget. It just happens. Oh, um, yeah. Wow. But yeah, is there any what anything coming up you're working on? Any any kind of anything uh, on the horizon? Um, I, I do have uh, a new album I've been working on that I kind of started, uh, on day one of shelter in place. And, um, it's, it's maybe, um, it's not, it's not quite a noise. It's pretty experimental. It's, it's, it's definitely got noisy parts and it. it's got a lot of the EM mixer in it with feedback. Um, it's got a lot of really, um, uh, crazy kind of rhythms and beats in it and it's very percussive um cool. uh it's it's a bit it, it's kind of a combination of well i i have another moniker called scarford which is you know, my first and last name <laughs> yeah. stuck together um and um uh and i've been using that with uh, uh um, for the work i've done with a group called catabatic which is uh, a little bit more uh um uh dark electronic music and so uh more, much more rhythmic and and electro and uh industrial uh i would suppose uh, sec later generation industrial uh sounding or ebm sounding i guess um anyway so this takes some of those sounds and and material palette but really puts some crazy drums and trying to tap into a lot of the strange emotions that I think myself and I'm sure many others have been uh, going through anxieties or um, frustrations or sadnesses, whatever it is. And I've just been kind of writing songs based on what I felt is the dominant mood of day and really trying to be very spontaneous with at least the initial part of that song. So um, it's, it's going to be pretty interesting. I'm not sure when it's going to be done, but that's been a, a project that's uh, I've been working on and I have a ton of unreleased stuff. So I've got to get a band camp uh, working because I think it's uh, I've got a, really all over the place, including a, well, I've got some pretty bizarre stuff. <laughs> it's just unreleased. Um, well, highly, highly recommend hey. putting it up. Yeah. For, yeah. You know, 
Uh, we'd love to hear all that stuff. Uh, and of course, you know, we can't recommend enough, you know, meter sickness on ground fault, somnable. Did I do that? Did I do it right? Uh, I, I always said somnambule. Somnambule. <laughs> it's a made up uh, word. So, you know, it's yeah, all fair. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the uh, great uh, Randy Yao uh, edit for consciousness split. Uh, Francisco Lopez collab tape on chondritic sleepless. I mean, there's, uh, we, we, we stand behind all these and can't recommend them enough for everyone to go check out. If anyone, uh, hasn't checked any of those out yet or, uh, you know, just, just get into it. Now's the time. And Scott's website is really good and comprehensive and gives you a nice idea of like, um, visual pieces and there are snippets available and descriptions. And I really had a great time exploring there. So I would highly recommend his website. And it's practically an antique. Well, she, it is. And it's, no, that's it. the thing is it's yeah. such a great website yeah. because it is, there is this old school, like when you go to yeah. it, the 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 uh, words kind of fade in. You it, you have it, to, it you have to old, wait for it. But it was like that time <laughs> when like websites you were like we're gonna make it like a thing. Like it's so it is really great. Uh, the seven hertz website. Of course, it. we'll put I links to all great. this. Yeah, seven uh, hertz. As well as of course, um, if if anyone has not picked up the uh, fuck TV set or or the Pain Factory sets, uh, absolute mandatory items mandatory. to have. Uh, and like I said, Taryn and I did five hours of fuck TV yesterday. Go, have fun. I don't know if we'll ever be the you same again. You guys are again. brave. That is tough. <laughs> I'm that is like tough. I mean, serious kudos to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, it was actually, much, you know, we had our cocktails on the set. It was actually very much we were, more pleasant. It was than like we were camping. We but, just like closed out the outside world yeah. and just had that on. But it's actually kind of nice you because the, Yule, the uh, episode. On well, yeah, the you yeah. episode, but then also the what's the the Haterella episode kind of comes in at a mm-hmm. nice time where yeah. it's a little bit of a almost a break from mm-hmm. the overload uh but then you get that great yeah. the fi- the f- the finale with uh as we kind of referenced before the great kind of uh the speech over it and the the live performance yeah the ironing so. sand portion oh, was kind Haterella. of a reset oh, the Haterella. Haterella. so yeah nice. and that was an interesting you know very different episode in that you know, uh, we we asked you know GX if he wanted to do something. Of course, he had great ideas. So we became kind of the the production crew for his ideas, and, and that was a, that was a blast. That was great. So agreed, great, agreed. so great. Well, thanks so much, man. This was amazing. Yeah. Uh, we oh. really, really appreciate you talking to us. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the great questions, and you guys are wonderful hosts. This is an amazing program, and and uh, I'm just beyond honor to be on it. Sounds Appreciate good. all your kind words and thoughts. Heck yes. Thank you, Heck yes. Thank you for all, all the right. music and uh, let's go, let's go watch a zombie movie. Yes. Sounds great. I want to watch oh, Burial good. Ground. Let's watch Ooh. Burial Ground. Okay. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noise extra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.